All right, Philippians. We, we want to see here that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Philippians in approximately 62 AD, and he did that while he was in prison. And this was the first of two Roman imprisonments. So the Apostle Paul in this letter anticipates being released. He's very optimistic that this court proceeding that he's, that's underway, he's going to be viewed on favorably, and he will be released. And he is. But about a year later, he's rearrested and goes to prison again in Rome and eventually is beheaded. And so we see here in the Apostle, this letter, we see oddly that even though he's in prison, He's still joyful. He's a joyful prisoner. It seems very strange to us to look at that. But the Apostle Paul was not glum. He was not gloomy, even though he had every possible circumstantial reason going on in his life to be that way. But he wasn't. He rose above those circumstances. How did he do that? Well, God used what appears to be the worst of all circumstances to provide some great blessings in the Apostle Paul's life. And he does that through Epaphroditus and the bringing of these fresh supplies to him and possibly some money to be able to aid him in prison. In prison in those days, they, didn't, they weren't uh, fed and clothed by the state. People had to support you or else you just starved to death. You would die. And so Epaphroditus comes to Paul's aid and he does that. And sometimes Philippians has been called an epistle of joy. And as I said, the Apostle Paul is a joyful prisoner. And we can look at that and say, boy, that is very, very strange. It's very odd for somebody to have joy. And when we look at the world's definition of joy, we see that it's just kind of a heightened state of happiness. It's very circumstantial. If things are going well for you, then you're going to be happy and joyful. And if they're not, then you're not. But when we look at the Apostle Paul... He didn't view joy that way. Joy was something that was fixed. It wasn't something circumstantial. It was fixed. It was rooted in something else. It came from the inside, not the outside. And so the Apostle Paul believed that you could go through very unfavorable circumstances in your life and still have the fruit of joy in your life. And he said things like, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He was sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful because of circumstances, but always rejoicing because of what the Lord had done in his heart. It's a very strange way to look at things, but that is the way that the Holy Spirit works in one's life. He gives us the fruit of joy, and he gave that to the Apostle Paul in abundance. They couldn't take away his joy. Why? Because his joy didn't go up and down with circumstances. It wasn't a happiness. It was rooted in his relationship in Christ. He was in Christ Jesus. We see that in verse 1. He was in Christ Jesus, writing to the church at Philippi, who was also in Christ Jesus. And that should make all the difference in the world to us. Jesus made all the difference in the world to the Apostle Paul. We need to ask ourselves, has Jesus made a difference in our lives? Is he making a difference today in our lives? It's a searching question that we need to answer honestly, but to Paul, joy was that inner confidence that all will be well in God. An inner confidence, that's where his joy would arise from. He was sure of that, that if all is well with God, and it always is, then all will be well with me, and always will be. Despite what might be going on in my life, despite the chaos, despite the the sorrows, 
We can have that joy because in God, all things are well. Paul had that joy, that quiet confidence that in God, all is well. And so with me, all is well. And so if you were to ask me, how are you doing? I will say, well, well, because all is well with God. We can always be well when all is well with God, because it always will be. And so if you are hurting, if you are struggling tonight, if you are sorrowful, if your circumstances are overwhelming you, then I invite you to look into the life of the Apostle Paul, to look at how joyful he is, to look at how thankful he is, and to look at how prayerful he is in this passage as we look. So I would say that if you are prayerful, if you are thankful, then I think that's going to lead to joy in your life. If you're a prayerful person, if you're a thankful person, living a life of gratitude before God, then I think you're going to have joy in your life. You're going to have that confidence in your life that in God, all is well. So let's look at verses 3 to 8. We see how thankful Paul is, the theme of thankfulness throughout here, and also prayer throughout here. There's not a fine line of demarcation. They're all kind of intertwined throughout the passage. But we see that Paul had a great love and affection for the church at Philippi. We see that in verse 8 and elsewhere throughout this book. But you can see his love and affection and gratitude throughout this letter. It really is a letter of thanks, but it's not only that. It's much more than that. In verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you. And verse 4, he says, making my prayer with joy. Now, we might look at that and say, on the one hand, Paul, you're remembering Philippi. Are, are you choosing to forget a number of things that happened to you at Philippi? Do you remember the imprisonment? Do you remember the beatings with rods? I don't know if you've ever done any research on what that looked like, but they would stretch the prisoner out and beat them with rods until their their backs were bloodied and bleeding. That would be a very painful memory. That would probably make some of us say, I'm never going to that town again. Forget that place. No way. I'm not going there. Painful, painful memories. I, I don't want any part of those people. I don't want any part of that place. If I ever go back there, I just might get beaten again and imprisoned. I don't want any part of that. But Paul didn't do that. Paul didn't look back through the tunnel of his memories and see all the negative things. He saw all the joy that was there in these people. Paul was blessed. And I hope that you are too with the ability to dwell on and to remember the good, great things that God has done. That in a sense, God can hit that delete button and remove those memories and give us the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome those bad negative memories. He could be thankful for many different things. What is Paul thankful for? Well, he's thankful for their salvation, that God had done a great work in their midst. He's thankful what the gospel had done in Lydia, what the gospel had done in the Philippian jailer, and many more people in Philippi, so that now they have this this burgeoning church there, a growing church there, a vibrant church there. He could be thankful. Though he experienced great pain, the gospel moved with great power amongst the Philippian church. And that's what Paul remembered, so he could pray for them with great joy. Not remember all the pain, but remember them with joy. 
Paul was not about ease and comfort. That's one thing that we learned very quickly about the Apostle Paul. He was not about ease and comfort. He was not going to take the easy way out of situations. He was going to go headlong into danger if that meant that the gospel would advance. Very strange character. Sometimes we might shy away from those painful experiences and not want anything to do with them painful things, but yet the Apostle Paul was very different in that way. God gave him a special ability through the power of the Holy Spirit, and I pray that he gives us that ability as well. He was also thankful for the Philippians and their partnership with him. We see that in verse 5, verse 7, for their partnership, that they were partakers, partners. It wasn't a one-man show. It wasn't just the great Apostle Paul and everyone else is subservient to him. No, they were partners with him in the ministry that he, was, that he was doing there through the gospel. And so the practical act of giving led to this fruit, the spiritual fruit in the lives of the Philippians and many other people. They supported the Apostle Paul. They stuck with the Apostle Paul. Paul was faithful in the gospel ministry and they were faithful in gospel giving very important principle. Not one person is greater than another person. We are all part of the body of Christ. We are all part of the family of God, and we each do our part to enable the gospel to be able to move forward. Now, we can be partners in a lot of ways. You can be partners in a marriage. You could be a partner in a law firm. You could have teammates, and you all have a common goal. And with the Philippian church and the Apostle Paul, they had that common goal of seeing the gospel move ahead. That was their sole aim and purpose, was to see the spread of the gospel. However that would happen, whatever hardships had to be endured, the primary focus and point was to bring the gospel to as many people as possible. And they were busy. They were busy in that. Now, busy is the root word of business, They had business to do, spiritual business to do with God through cooperation of the Holy Spirit, enabling them and equipping them. They were partners in this spiritual business. So you might be a construction worker, but you have another business. You might be a homemaker, but you have another business to do. And it's not a side job, it's your primary job. God saves us, And he wants to see other people saved through us, through our life, through our proclamations of the gospel, as we'll see here in a few moments. But regardless of what job you have, or even if you're out of a job, you always have this job. You always have this job. And it's our primary job. It's not a side job. We are to see other people's grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and to preach the gospel and to see people grow in the gospel. So Paul was very, very thankful for their partnership in the gospel. And you just flip over to to chapter 4 and verse 15, 4, 15, and 16, you see there, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. That's That's a stark reality in the life of the Apostle Paul, isn't it? Of all the places that he's gone, they're the only church that was supporting him. And verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Thessalonica had their own church. Why weren't they supporting him? 
but yet the church at Philippi was sending aid to the Apostle Paul even in Thessalonica. So as we check, uh, flip back to chapter 1, Paul was thankful for their support to him and thankful for the grace at work within them. And we see that in verse 6, a great verse of encouragement and assurance for us. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. A great word of encouragement there. Paul is thankful for the good work being done within them. It is a good work, but sometimes that good work can be a gradual work. And that gradual work can become very frustrating for us because we get frustrated with ourselves. Why do we keep doing the same things that we don't want to do? Like Paul mentions in Romans 7. God is so long-suffering with us. And we seem to be so slow to learn sometimes. But yet God is doing this good work within us. It's a gradual work, but it will be a completed work. We can be sure of that. God doesn't leave a job half done. You might have unfinished construction projects going on at your house. You might uh, start a book and and leave off a couple chapters in. God never does that with us. He's going to complete that work that he starts. Always. He always finishes the job. And so there is that sense in which the Lord does this with us that right now we might be under construction. We might have a sign above us under construction. And we do because we're not perfect. We've got a long ways to grow in grace and patience and all these different ways. But yet God will complete that work. There will be a resurrection. And for believers, it'll be a resurrection unto life. It'll be a resurrection unto life. And for non-believers, it'll be a resurrection unto judgment and condemnation. Now, how do we know that God is at work within us? How do we know that God is doing something within us? Well, there's, there's lots of different ways and measuring sticks that we could use to see if God is at work within us. And one is that we have a love for him. We love God. We love his word. We love his people. But here in verse 7, we see two things that Paul did throughout his life and throughout his legal proceedings that could also be markers in our lives. And I think that for most of you, I'm fairly, fairly sure, as I know many of you here, most of you here, that these two markers are characteristic of you. And we see one in verse 7 there, this defense. That is when you stand up for the gospel. That's where we get the, the word apologetics, a defense of the gospel apologetics, which means to stand up for the gospel, to answer questions, to explain the faith, to stand up for the truth, that we don't just sit in the, the lunchroom and when somebody says something that's untrue or false concerning God or the word, that we just let it slide. No, we stand up. We make a defense for the gospel. It's important for us. If you didn't do that, if you didn't love God and didn't love God's truth and hadn't been changed by God, then you wouldn't want to do that. But because you do, you do want to make that defense. It becomes a testimony in your own heart, in your own life, that you love God, you've been changed by God. It becomes a marker for you. You stand up and you make a defense for the gospel because it matters to you. It shows that you love him. It shows that you care about him. You make a stand. And then the second thing there is confirmation. That's when you spread the gospel, when you want to proclaim the gospel. Confirmation of the gospel. Again, it's a, it's a legal term, like the defense is a legal term. For giving legal testimony, it means to tell or to confirm a fact positively. 
positive confirmation of a fact. Every time the gospel is received and believed, it's confirmed that it still changes lives. It's been confirmed. Confirmation of the gospel. That's how you know that God is at work within you. When you want to see the gospel defended and you want to see the gospel proclaimed and believed. Those are two great markers that we see here. That God is at work within us when we desire those things. And this is something that we are all partakers in. It's a family task. The family of God, all in the family, together, doing this great task of seeing the gospel defended and proclaimed. It's a task that's begun by Jesus, passed on through the apostles. It's been handed down to us, and we in turn want to hand that down to our children and to other people that we come in contact with. All of us are involved in this great partnership with God. And as one has said, the kingdom of God is not meant to be a loose confederation of island individuals, but rather a unified group that is committed to the welfare of each other. And then this individual goes on to to characterize the church as the body, as the scriptures do, and uh, get what he says next. The only cell in the human body that does its own thing is the cancer cell. We can't be rogue in our Christian lives. We can't go on our own. We need the body of Christ. Every single one of us banding together, galvanized together under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ, proclaiming his gospel, advancing his gospel in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our communities, all of these things. We can't be rogue in the Christian life. We can't go it alone. We must have one another. It takes all of us planting, watering, and God gives the increase and God gets the glory. So Paul was thankful for all of these good things taking place in the Philippian church. Paul was not only thankful, he was also prayerful. And we see that in verses 9 through 11. 9 through 11, we see that there. Prayer was a vital part of the Apostle Paul's life. Very, very vital. And we see him even write out his prayers in many of his epistles, all the different uh, things that he has to say there. What does Paul pray for? He doesn't pray for Lydia's sore knee. He doesn't pray for the Philippian jailer sore back. He doesn't focus in on health issues like many of our requests are. And it's not wrong, not wrong at all to pray for health things. Not wrong at all. But the primary focus of our prayers should be spiritual things. Those are of much greater importance. And that is where the Apostle Paul focuses his prayers in his epistles. And one of those great prayers is found in Ephesians chapter 3. If you want to read that later, it's a great, great prayer of the Apostle Paul there. But he prays here and he says, it is my prayer. And we need to perk up and say, okay, this is something that really matters to the Apostle Paul. What is he going to tell us? What is he praying for? It is my prayer. This is his main request now for the Philippian church. His main request that your love may abound more and more. That is his supreme request for the Philippian church, that their love may abound more and more, that it may increase more and more. Love is the supreme request here. All of the other things that flow out of this that we're going to read here, all of those other things flow from that main point, that their love would abound more and more for one another. Now, why does he pray for love? 
Well, because love is the great mark of the Christian, a love for one another. If you don't have a love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, I would say it's pretty safe to say, based on the word of God, that you probably don't know Christ. You probably don't know Christ if you don't love the brethren. And we see that throughout uh, the, the, the epistles and in First John and other places, that we need to have a love for our brothers and sisters. Now abide faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love becomes a great marker of the church and a great witness to the world that we are the people of God. Love for one another. It's been said that a man can be a good doctor and not love his patients. You could be a good lawyer and not love your clients, but you cannot be a good Christian without loving one another. And in verses 9, 10, and 11, Paul gives us four attitudes or expressions, attributes of what real, authentic love for brothers and sisters looks like. And the first one is that our love should be overflowing. We see that at the start of verse 9, that it would abound more and more. Our love should excel toward the people of God. It should abound more and more. And then secondly, at the end of verse 9, we see that our love should have boundaries. Did you know that? Your love should have boundaries. It should be with knowledge and all discernment. What does that overflowing love look like? Well, it has some parameters. It has some parameters. Knowledge and all discernment. It's not the type of love that we are just to tolerate anything, accept everything, go with the flow. It's not that type of love. It is hedged in by these two areas of knowledge and discernment. When Tammy and I were recently uh, away on vacation, one of the places that we like to walk has a huge mountainside on one side of the trail and then a great embankment on the other side of the trail. And we walk along that trail. And you could picture it perhaps as a, as a river flowing down with two mountains on each side, steep bankments. And that's kind of what is being pictured here with this knowledge and discernment. We have that river of love that flows, but these two banks of knowledge and discernment on the side that hedge us in and keep us there along that river of love that would be flowing. Now, what does that even look like? What does that even mean? Well, knowledge is a mature knowledge brought on by experience, and discernment is insight, mature insight. It's like parents who express their love to their children, and one day they might give their child a gift, but the next day they could give their child discipline. Both are expressions of love. We love our children, we discipline them. We love them, we give them gifts. And we do this so that, and there's a purpose clause there, so that you may approve what is excellent. Approve, it's the idea of testing, testing metal specifically, testing that metal to make sure that it's pure and it's right. There was a fake gold scam recently in Langley where these fellows were, were going with this fake gold and they were, they were pretending that they had some kind of crisis and they had needed funds in an emergency. And so they were selling this gold to people on the street at greatly reduced prices. And of course, some people fall for this as it always seems like some people do. And so they purchase this gold and lo and behold, they go to try to resell it for that increased value that they think they're going to get. But of course, it's not pure gold at all. It's a fake. 
And in ancient times, it was common to be scammed with pottery. So there'd be broken pottery and people would try to fix it with wax. And so people would think that they're getting this great deal on this nice vase or whatever it was, and they would take it home and all of a sudden there's a 35 degree day. And what happens to their pot? It starts to fall apart because they bought a a fake. And so our love should not be that way. We should approve what is excellent. We shouldn't have a fake love. In ancient times, we, we see those types of things happen, these fakeries. But yet, in our times, we don't want to be fake in our love because that is a very, very poor witness to one another and to the world. So this leads to the third characteristic, that our love should be real. It should be pure and blameless. We see that in verse 10. It needs to be pure, not phony, not with hypocrisy, what Paul calls in Romans 12, 9, love without hypocrisy. We need to have love without hypocrisy, real, real, authentic love. And Matthew Henry says, hypocrisy is to do the devil's work in God's uniform. Doing the devil's work in God's uniform, having that, that, that phony, fake exterior, but yet inwardly corrupt hypocrisy. It's a terrible, terrible testimony. And few things give offense like hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, when we see that in ourselves, it hurts us. We don't want to be hypocrites. We want to be authentic. We want to be real. We want to be pure and blameless. And so our love should overflow. It should have boundaries. It should be real. And then fourthly, our love should be for the glory of God. And we see that in verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul always had a higher purpose. And it was always that purpose, the glory of God. Paul is saying here that this is the kind of love that is the fruit of righteousness by which God is glorified. That's how we glorify God, by loving in this authentic way. And when our love abounds more and more, when it's kept by knowledge and discernment, that is a pure love and God is glorified in that. And that is the highest purpose of all love. In all of our love, in all of our relationships. Think about the love relationships that you have in your life. The highest purpose of your marriage? The glory of God. The highest purpose in your parenting? The glory of God. The highest purpose in your love toward your fellow church members? The glory of God. The highest purpose in your love toward your neighbors? The glory of God. And so on and so on. In your employment, whatever you do, the glory of God is your highest purpose purpose. We should always be striving after giving God glory in all that we do. So the purpose of our relationships is not so that we feel loved, not so that we feel loved, but that we are able to love this way towards other people and therefore glorify God. So we're not to ask, who is going to love me like this? We're to prayerfully ask, Lord, who can I love that way this week with authenticity with that overflowing love without any any ulterior motive loving someone to get something you know that's not pure that's not blameless but that's sometimes the way that we operate in loving other people because we're trying to get something but that the ultimate purpose of all of life is the glory of god 
That's what we want to strive towards and live towards. We exist for the glory of God. That is man's chief end, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. For thy pleasure, all things were created. For his pleasure. 1 Corinthians 10, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. So our love should be growing, abounding more and more, and our love should be showing. It should be visible. should be visible demonstrations of our love towards other people. And that is exactly what the Lord did to us, right? The Lord showed his love to us. Romans 5 and verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's a demonstration of his love for us, that he died for us. Great love for us. So our love should be growing and our love should be showing. And that is my prayer for myself this coming week. And that will be my prayer for you this week. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, sometimes we look at our own hearts, at our own lives, and we lament because we fall short. We can take courage because we know that the good work that you have started in us, though it is gradual, though sometimes it's glacial, sometimes it's so painful for us to look at and to see, and yet we know, Lord, that you do not abandon your children, that you will bring that work, that good work, to full completion. And so we thank you for your grace and patience. Pray that you would help us to grow in our love toward one another, grow in our love towards our own families, towards our spouses, towards our children, towards others in our neighborhood. And we pray that that love would show and be demonstrated just like your love is demonstrated to us. And so we pray and ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.